Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. For January 6, 2019, our first show of the new year. Welcome, as always, Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome, Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. All right, good to have you all both on. And about 20 minutes into the show, we're going to have one of our favorite and most frequent guests, uh, DNC member and Rome City Council uh, person, Wendy Davis will join us and talk about just all kind of things nationally and about the state of Georgia. And then, um, of course, we're going to talk about other political topics in our buy, sell, hold. And for presidential candidates, we've got two more entrants into the fray, and we'll discuss both of those people. Uh, But, of course, our lead topic for, I think, the third week now, and we may have actually uh, known what was going to happen. I have to look back. It may have been our lead topic for four straight weeks unfortunately, would be the government shutdown, which is entering its um, end of the second week, may unfortunately go all the way to a third week. Um, Catherine, people are so drawn in, are are entrenched. There's been very little polling. Do you think that the fact that this happened over the holidays has extended it even more than normal? Well, uh, what's normal? (laughs) But, yes, yes, I think (laughs) You know, I think um, because the you know we had the switch to the new Congress and the holidays, I think that did um, the timing what did make it did extend it. Um, but it's also the worst possible time to have people working and not getting paid, and it's just horrible what it's doing to people and. There's just so many, so many things being affected by it. It's really kind of tragic. Yeah, Catherine, you're right about the timing. Now, and it was even worse. Like if it would have been at Thanksgiving, then people could have said, okay, maybe I need to spend a little less this Christmas, Hanukkah, holidays, buy fewer gifts, which is still unfortunate, but we'll plan for it. But the way it hit, people probably put more on the credit cards than they really needed to. And some of these folks that run for the work for the government or have funding sources that come through people having government jobs are going to be affected in this time when you know the money's not there. And then of course you've got uh, the you know heat, people's heating their homes. It's one of the coldest times of year. But but Tim, talking about this timing, there's really no polling out there, and a lot of people think that the polling in you know relation to this is, um, you know, when the polls kind of turn, if you will, and see who's who gets the blame, not who's to blame, but who gets the blame, that that may speed the end of the shutdown. But there's been like one poll in the last two weeks, and that was over a week ago. Um, do you think that kind of factors in? Uh, a, a little bit. Uh, you know, I had a member of the media um, tell me just a couple of days ago that, 
because of the timing of this that you and Catherine were talking about, especially, um, the average American has not yet really noticed any adverse effects of this shutdown. Uh, oh, but they're coming down the pike now. Unless you visited a national park and uh, couldn't park at a parking lot because it was closed, like it, at, at Kennesaw Mountain, I understand that's a problem, or, or notice the trash cans running over or something like that, uh, you probably, probably have not yet uh, even uh, felt the effects of this shutdown. Uh, but it, 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 it's going to come. Um, it, I, I mean, uh, what are they going to do when they run out of funding, for instance, to uh, issue food stamps? Now, people are certainly going to notice that when that happens. What are you going to do with the people that depend on food stamps? They're going to let them starve, I mean. Uh, so the Democrats have come up with a unique idea that I'm sure we'll get into in a minute about, you know, uh, more legislation. But uh, so far, people just haven't noticed it, I think, is the thing. I'd give it another week or two. Then they're going to really start tuning in. Yeah, and I think there'll be more and more stories about how it affects our lives. It'll become like a regular feature on all the national newscasts and what have you about this is real people being affected. People have stories. People will share things on social media. Um, Catherine, Tim's right about, you know, uh, food stamp programs. That not only affects the people that get them and their families, but then grocery stores and farmers. And, I mean, our economy is so intertwined. Uh, what are some things you can tell us more about that? Well, I mean, there's a, apparently from I read an article today that said there was reserve funds for uh, the SNAP program that are like 64 percent of what they'll need for a month. Going so they have January. Almost, I can't remember if it was January or February, but it's in in the very near future they're going to have no funds available, and right now they don't have enough to fully fund. So, I mean, it, it's a, it's that's going to be a big, um, it's going to have a big impact because of, like you said, grocery stores, farmers, and then also, of course, the people who receive those food stamps and use them to feed their families. And it's important to remember that most of the people that receive food stamps are are working poor jobs. That a lot of them work at Walmart, as a matter of fact. You know, we've heard those stories before that. You know, one of the uh, early training pieces when you work at Walmart is how to apply for food stamps. So, um, I mean, th- these, this is dramatic, and it, it's, um, it's just horrifying when, I mean, these are children and families that won't be able to put food on their tables. And the, I don't know if, any, if you've read any of the, any of the stories about the state of the national parks, but that's also, I mean, they really should have closed those national parks when they did the shutdown because the national parks, I mean, they're just being trampled and there's no staff there to, you know, I've visited a lot of national parks in my life and it was always my, I mean, I was always taught that you should leave it better than 
what than when you arrived. So we, you know, my parents would always, you know, have us pick up random trash that might be around and stay on the trails and not, you know, disturb the wildlife and, you know, uh, respect and appreciate and listen to the staff and all those kind of things. But apparently everybody's just running rampant in these national parks. There's human waste that is like un, not being taken care of and then trash overflowing and you know people don't remember that these are our national they're not someone else's they're ours it's our job to make sure that they're um well respected and taken care of it's just kind of depressing to read about it but they really need to shut them down and close them because or close them because it's it who knows how long it will take to repair whatever damage is done yeah, and I will say this. I mean, you had a lot of Christmas vacation time. That two-week period is is ending almost for everybody. Any student I hear, K-12 or college, is pretty much going back um, on Monday. And so maybe, you know, they thought, well, we don't want to ruin people's uh, vacation plans. Uh, I, mean, I mean, I'm just playing devil's advocate on that part. No, um, I, I get then, that. I understand that. So now maybe they can say, okay, everybody's holiday vacation time is over. Everybody's back at school. Most, you know, mostly back at work because, you know, that time's ended. And so now we're going to close them down. Of course, that's not going to, you know, repair the trails and pick up the garbage and whatnot. Because, like, as we saw, one of the pictures that was tweeted out about garbage not being picked up was right in front of the White House. And really, everybody had tried to be a good citizen as far as um, we're going to throw it in the trash can until the trash can overflows, and then we're going to put it in the trash pile. Um, and, and you know, nobody's there to then collect the garbage back up. You know, a president that had any, you know, real understanding of how optics would have taken big, giant trash bags out there and picked up the trash themselves is a photo op. Sure, it's kind of fake, but it'd be a pretty smart thing to do. But, of course, we don't have a president that understands politics that well and certainly would probably never pick up a piece of trash um, since he's you know, so important and such a germaphobe. Because um, I kind of thought about that. You know, you've seen the politicians that fix the potholes and stuff like that um, with their own hands. Um, but And Andrew Young, mayor of Atlanta one time, he rode on the back of a garbage truck and did a route. Uh, so things like that have done. Tim, what's your thoughts of the sight of Donald Trump uh, picking up some trash outside the White House? You know what I'd like to get him to do? Uh, Make him go to Bill Houses with Jimmy Carter. Let's see who falls <laughs> out first. I, I bet you he wouldn't last. I bet he wouldn't last an hour out there in that boiling sun in the summertime when they build those houses. Um you, you know, um, this fool wants to call this shutdown a strike. <laughs> so uh, an ingenious government employee, she got the idea, well, if we're on strike, I can go apply for unemployment benefits. <laughs> and so that's what she's done uh, in desperation. Uh, you know, you're reading the stories about the TSA screeners calling in sick. Uh, creating lengthy airport delays. There's a place that people are going to notice this thing in a hurry. Um, 
That's right. Yeah, uh, uh, another another update on this. You know, I, I, last week my outrage, I talked about all the cabinet officials getting a pay raise. Well, some reporter asked Trump, don't you think you should freeze them? And Trump looked thoughtful and said, that, that might be a good idea. So he did. He froze their pay raises this week. Um, but uh, what 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 are we going to do uh, when you know things like the CDC starts to run out of funds? What are we going to do when it comes income tax time? And you know uh, some people are already sending in their you know returns now. I mean, and and there's no, you know they're not going to be able to do anything about it. Another story that's happening, guys, is uh, a lot of contractors that, you know, have contracts with the government, everything from construction workers to janitorial services. Not only are these people not getting paid while they're continuing to work, some of them, but their bosses and company owners are afraid that they won't get their back pay uh, when this thing does end. Uh, so there's quite a ripple-down effect that's beginning to go through the economy. And then we sit back, David, and we look for what you said, who's going to get the blame. Yeah, and look, it really Trump, about who Trump, gets the blame. Well, Trump got the blame for the shutdown. There's no doubt of that. But... Uh, Who's going to get the blame for this continuing? And, yeah, there will be uh, consequences of that, especially if Trump sees that people are starting to gravitate toward him. He'll just dig in. That that guy's not going to, you know, work anything out. So. Yeah, and, and we can see it's all over the wall, which is – which kind of infuriates yeah. me on a lot of th- times where you have these bills where it's supposed to be about one thing and people attach completely different objectives to a bill. And we've seen this for years. We've seen it from both parties. But this is just – this should be about funding the government under normal means, and then you should have a package that you feel is for border security, and then both parties can hash that out you know, separately and talk about – what truly would affect, you know, and would, you know, get to the root cause. Because to me, border security is just the thing. I mean, what is the problem you're seeing? If you want to talk about drugs, if you want to talk about crime, if you want to talk about terrorism, then we can talk about the root causes of those. And really, um, is it people from coming over certain borders? And then you can get into it. And, and I think your answers may be a little different than Trump and some of his people uh, feel it'll be. Well, Catherine, when are we ever going to get some polls? Unfortunately, it seems like polls are going to be what kind of moves this thing. Will we see some put in the field as early as tomorrow to where maybe by midweek we'll have some concrete numbers that may make, you know, possibly one side or the other move? Yeah, I don't know. You know, I haven't really been looking for them, so I I didn't realize there hadn't been any. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think we need to see that, but we also – need to make sure that our Democrats are standing tough against um, any wall, like uh, we like we heard Nancy Pelosi, our leader Pelosi, talking, uh, I guess it was Friday, um, or no, Thursday, 
Um, but yeah, it would be interesting to see how this is playing out in the, you know, world of the voters and see some poll numbers. I, I, I guess I wonder who would pay for that. Well, news organizations, you'd think, I mean, you know, Reuters, ABC, NBC, Wall Street yeah. Journal, they all do regular polling, and you think that someone will come up with something. I mean, but I did look through, try to find some polls, and they haven't even been doing approval ratings as much as uh, um, they have been in the past. I'll tell you how bad it is for Donald Trump, though. He's actually like negative six in Rasmussen. I mean, even Scotty Rasmussen can't um, shine that one up enough to make him even break even, which tells you a lot. Well, before Wendy comes on, I wanted to get into one more quick thing, and that was uh, late in the week, I think it was Friday, our junior senator, David Perdue, criticized Mitt Romney, a fellow Republican, um, for criticizing Donald Trump. And this actually got some national attention. It wasn't just here in Georgia. Tim, why is David uh, Perdue um, being so public against a fellow Republican who has been the party's standard bearer just five years ago, six years ago, and is newly elected to the Senate from uh, Utah? Well, he's not the only one that is going after uh, Romney. Uh, I mean, look, um, this is Donald Trump's party now. The Republican Party is. If anybody doesn't think that, uh, they are sadly, sadly mistaken. Um, Purdue has always been pretty much um, has, has always been pretty much pro-Trump. I think he genuinely believes, in order to get reelected here that that is also the only way to go, even though you don't have to uh, uh, get too argumentative with him about it. Uh, I know he said in an op-ed that what Romney said was was, was, was harmful, that it, it was, uh, you know, the he, he, he basically said the last thing we need is a, is a Jeff Flake. Um, criticism of uh, of the president. So, you know, I, I think Purdue not only is, is very strongly pro-Trump, but he, he believes that's genuinely the way to go. Uh, and, and he, like all the other Republicans, even if they believed otherwise privately, you're just not going to hear that publicly right now, guys. Uh, that's Donald Trump's party, and to oppose him, at least in primaries, has been shown to be very harmful to their electoral chances. So they they feel like they have to go with it. Yeah, there will be more to talk about this, but this kind of segues us in nicely to our guest, um, who is born and raised in Georgia and is on the DPG and is a DNC member for Georgia. Welcome back to the Kudzu by Wendy Davis. Hi, nice to be with you all. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, Wendy. Yes. Well, Wendy, I'm going to kind of kind of change Tim's question around a little, or what Tim was talking about a little. He was talking about, you know, 2018 race. But in 2016, Georgia did get more Democratic 
but we didn't win. We didn't get the deal done. It was kind of like a few years ago when the Falcons got the Super Bowl. Had a great season. You had all these wonderful things to brag about, but at the end of the day, there was no trophy. Um, at the end of the day, there's not a single statewide elected Democrat. Um, should we be more um, optimistic because we did better, or should we still be frustrated because we couldn't close the deal? Uh, both. <laughs> Is that a fair answer? <laughs> uh, you know, we um, we uh, we did make a lot of progress, right? And we had some outstanding statewide candidates, and we had national resources that came to bear on elections, not just the governor's race, but to to help fund the coordinated campaign. And many of our statewide candidates were very well funded. We had a, our PSC candidate, she raised, I, I think she raised a, a million dollars or something like that, right? Like it was a lot of money. And um, so we, we, are, we are clearly in play. You can no longer say we're just a bright red state sitting around here looking like losers, right? But uh, we made some progress in, with the legislature, uh, which was also encouraging. Uh, it looks like the suburbs are going blue which, you know, a number of years ago, we wouldn't have thought we'd see Cobb County and Gwinnett County being predictably Democrats. But uh, it looks like that's what we can say right now. Yes, and, and Wendy, uh, we're seeing this in Georgia, uh, and we had a guest on two or three weeks ago from South Carolina. He kind of echoed that same sentiment there. Their suburbs are more Democratic than they've been in decades. But over there and in here, when I started to look at some of the results, we lost ground in a lot of the rural counties. Um, what's that? What's going to be that magic formula to where we can bring rural areas, not back where maybe they were 30, 40 years ago when you would win some of these counties, but just when you could bring them back to, say, 2014 levels, uh, 2010 levels, and then still get these nice gains in counties like Gwinnett and Cobb? Well, David, I, I don't want to disagree with you because I really like you, but but I, I think what you saw in rural counties, at least in Georgia, was a mixed bag. Actually, some counties did better, uh, certainly, than they did uh, in 16, uh, and many of them did better than they did in 14. Uh, again, still not turning into blue counties, but the more progress we can make in the rural areas, obviously, the better we can do. Um, you have heard me say uh, one time or five million times that, if we go send real human beings to talk to real voters, uh, no matter what part of the state you're in, you will be more successful than if you don't. And I think that's what you saw in the rural communities where we had any significant actual campaign activity uh, or really effective local candidates. You did see progress even in the rural parts of the state. Uh, is it enough? Not yet. Uh, was it a move in the right direction? Certainly. Um, am I still a believer that, we have to have um, messaging that is not about demographics. Of course, we've got to have a messaging about we have a candidate with great ideas that's going to help Georgians uh, of every shape and size. Well, and Wendy, you know, no apologies on that answer because here's the thing. If you tell me that in – I'm just going to use two rural counties that are back that are next door to each other, Mitchell and Baker. If you told me in Mitchell we held our ground – but in Baker, we lost ground, but we had a campaign in Mitchell, but we had no campaign in Baker. That makes sense because, I mean, there were definitely 
you can point to large handfuls of counties in which we lost uh, ground in rural counties in the last four years, but maybe it isn't all, and maybe there is a, a definable X factor called campaigning that uh, you can mitigate that with, and you need to figure out how to put people in more counties where more people live and the, you know, the larger rural counties, which for simple, that sounds like an oxymoron, but I mean, there are counties that have more people than others, even if they're small. Um, well, I'm not going to take up all, all right. the time. I'm going to pass this on to Tim to bring us on to new topics. Tim? Good evening, Wendy. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing well, my friend. Listen, uh, I noticed that the DNC has started its fundraising for the 2020 cycle about six months earlier than they ever have in the past. Uh, generally, they do that. They, they they really started in earnest in midsummer before the election year, but they, they've already started it. Now, I, I, any idea why that is? Is the party broke or what? Uh, well, I think it's I think it's because uh, everything's in overdrive and everything is in constant campaigning all the time mode. Um, and I imagine the coffers are depleted from all the money they spent uh, all across the country in 2018. Um, but the, yeah. the presidential campaigns are, are coming at us and coming at us fast, and uh, the party does want to be ready. I'm, I'm pleased that they've already put out a, a plan for – uh, debates that hopefully will stop the the conversation being about uh, debates favoring one candidate over another if we have the details of debates set before we even have a field set. Yeah, do you do you think this earlier stuff in the constant campaign mode is is, is going to be pretty much the norm for the national parties from here on out? Uh, sad to say, it's 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 starting to be the norm at at every level. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, uh, it just—I mean, every cycle, you're like, that was a record amount of money spent for X race, and then the next year, uh-huh. oh wow, that was a record amount of money spent for X race. I mean, it's just the 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 money is astronomical. I, I really, I'm just I, I, every time I'm like, wow, can it really get more expensive than that? I mean, I remember when we thought, you know, Roy Barnes in 2002 raised. You know, he did. He raised more money than anybody ever had to run for re-election as governor and still lost, right? And and now that's mm-hmm. chicken feed. So, mm-hmm. um, well, it's, it's, you know, it's not it's not something that makes me happy, but it's it's the world we live in. You you, you know, uh, you, you kind of helped me segue into my next question because you're kind of unique among our guests. You're you're a local elected official. And you are also intricately involved in both statewide and national politics, of course, as a member of the DNC. Uh, which one's the most challenging right now? Hmm. Can you ask that in a more specific <laughs> way? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, uh, is, is, is it more challenging to be involved in local politics, statewide politics, or national politics? Which, which is the tougher road to follow right now among the well, three? Well, you know, they, they all have their um, sort of pluses and minuses, right? Like, they're, they're all really fascinating. I, I really... Uh, I had no idea how much I would enjoy being a local elected official, um, but uh-huh. you know, some days 
then I also still look at my colleagues like, do am I speaking English right? Because they're looking at me like I'm speaking Martian or something. <laughs> they, they don't seem to understand some days why I have the questions I have that I am in their mind uh, bold enough to ask when that they don't think they need to be asked, right? So yeah, that the, can be frustrating, but it's also the, the service and the way I can reach and help my constituents is, is very satisfying and very enjoyable. Um, at the national yeah. level, um, I, I'm, uh, I'm again, it's a mixed bag, right? Like I'm really excited because it feels like as actual DNC members, we have more uh, agency, I think that's the right word, right? Like we actually are having votes that our vote matters rather than previously it felt like everything was sort of a rubber stamp kind of vote, right? Like a, a nod and smile sort of thing. Um, but mm-hmm. I also find it frustrating some of the directions my colleagues have chosen to take. So um, I keep finding myself on the, on the short end of votes and, and I much rather be in the majority. So <laughs> let's put it that mm-hmm. way. Yeah. I'm going to ask you one more question and you notice I have purposely uh, avoided all questions about the, the DPG and the elections coming up. Because our resident expert, Catherine, I'm sure is going to pick that up with you in ways that I never could. But I do want to ask you this. Uh, we were talking a little bit um, before we went on the air. That um, Dave, David brought this point up, by the way, is that everything seems to be frozen in place, waiting for Stacey Abrams to decide to do something is there any hint out there at all whether she is leaning toward a senate run or another run uh at the governor's chair so i i am not in that uh set that has um the ear or the you know i'm i'm not an insider with the abrams crew for those sort of deliberations mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. I, I couldn't speak to it but I I don't think I think that everything being on hold is sort of a a sense from the media I think there's there's a lot going on behind the scenes of people positioning themselves uh, for U.S. Senate runs so um, mm-hmm. I mean I feel uh, I feel like Teresa Tomlinson is running uh, I mean maybe she Backs did, out if Abrams gets in. I don't know. That was my that was my final question. Uh, is her running contingent on an Abrams candidacy or non-candidacy, or do we have any idea? Uh, again, I, there may be people who have a, a more solid idea, but um, but she seems to be have been running. In my mind, I've seen her positioning herself to run for six or eight months. And uh, mm. and now she may well, if Abrams gets in, she may well back out. Um, you know, I'm not sure. But to me, she was the person who was the earliest out of the gate in that sort of inside baseball positioning themselves uh, to be running. All right. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to jump out of here and turn it over to the state expert. Catherine, come on in and talk to Wendy. <laughs> Hi, Wendy. It's so nice to have you on the show, and Happy New Year, and I hope you had a chance to relax a little bit over the holidays because it's I been did. quite a year of elections, as, as we know. Yeah. And, uh, and Are you all right? That, 
before you before you jump in and ask, yes, yeah, sorry, I've got a little tickle in my throat. Before you jump in and ask about state party stuff, let me just mention because because I don't think we're going to talk about it at length, but let me just throw it in here. 2019, uh, all across the country, there are city elections. So let's not think that there oh, are yeah. just elections in uh, in New Jersey and uh, a couple other random places. We've got city elections all over the country and hundreds of them across Georgia. So. Yeah, well, I was yelling at the radio yesterday about that because they were talking about something and they were saying, well, we'll be all ready for – 2020, and I was like, well, what about 2019? <laughs> because people forget about all those elections. Right. So let me ask you about the um, DPG um, elections for chair and all the leadership um, and, I guess, congressional districts and, and the whole ball of wax. Um, the only person I've heard of, that's, the only people that I've heard of that are running for chair are Nakima Williams, of course, are longtime friend, and uh, and Daniel Blackman, who's also a friend and a, a great guy. Um, and then there, I've, I've heard of, so that's the only ones I know of for chair. Are there others that I'm unaware of that you know I, of? I have, not heard, I have not heard of any other chair candidates at this time. Now, uh, several weeks ago, there were there were you know media speculations about this that or the other person, but there's there's nothing that I you know I again I'm I have the luxury because of my DNC position of also being on the executive committee of the of the state party, so that usually means that when folks start calling through looking for support, they start with the executive committee, and and those are the only two I've gotten calls from for chair. For vice chair, I've only heard of three. Kip Carr, for first vice chair, Kip Carr, uh, Anthony Martin, and Ted Terry, which presents a pro- if there's unless there's others, it presents a problem for Daniel Blackman if there's not a woman running for first vice chair, correct? Well, um, I don't know that it's a problem for Daniel, right? <laughs> like, uh, it, it becomes complicating um uh, and I suspect that there will be uh, a woman, if not more than one woman, women who um, who look at that vice chair uh, okay. position. Uh, we we are a little bit early in the process. Um, there is, I had heard of of one uh, person who was thinking of running for first vice chair, uh, and then they've they've moved to a different slot. Um, but uh, but again, the the qualifying paperwork is not due until the fifteenth, so some of this may be. Um, yeah, it'll shake out. Uh, and in, just in for our listeners, a lot before the fifteenth. Right. For our listeners that are wondering about that question, <clears throat> our bylaws in the D- Democratic Party of Georgia require that the if we elect a woman as the first vice chair, we must elect a man as the. I mean, if we elect a woman as the chair, we must elect a man as a uh, first vice chair and vice versa. If we elect a man as a chair, we must elect a woman as a first vice chair. I guess we, right. And um, again, the, the, well, the reason for that is because both of those positions are automatically on the DNC and the DNC has a very uh, absolute uh, gender equality um, proportionment, right? So that, that's why it's, it's not like, and, and really it, it was because, because of that national bylaw, and it was instituted to make sure women had uh, 
you know, an appropriate role in leadership. So the kind of the funny thing is now we're like, hey, can we, you know, maybe need some guys to step up, right? <laughs> um, I haven't really looked at any of the other offices yet. <clears throat> I am still a member of the state committee, so I will be there and voting. And um, I'm looking forward to new leadership. I mean, I love DeBose, and I think he's been really great. And I think we'll miss his um, – his uh, je ne sais quoi or whatever it is about mm-hmm. him that, you know, sort of, you know what I mean? It's he's got that great, yeah. um, that great groove about him that, you know, keeps us all um, excited and enthusiastic. And uh, I'm sure that whoever, um, whoever the new one is, will do the same, but, but his, he has a certain quality about him that I I've grown to really admire and, and um, appreciate, and I think we'll miss it right. a, a little bit. Yeah, um, definitely. Have... Um, so the interesting thing, though, is that, uh, and again, we have not every state is set up this way. So we have the chair. We have four vice chair positions. One of them is just called first vice chair, and the other three have um, specific roles to them, and a secretary and treasurer. So the really fascinating thing, too, is that there is only – Right now, it appears that there's only going to be one incumbent seeking re-election. So every one of the other six uh, statewide offices um, of those officer positions are uh, open seats, right? So we will definitely have change uh, of leadership. And uh, and many of our congressional district chairs are also going to be open seats. Sorry, my dog next to never barks. Of course he is right now. <laughs> it's okay. We like we like dogs on the Cudsey Vine. We do. Yeah, but one of last year, last week, my cat disconnected me from uh, the show. I had to call back in. <laughs> Those darn um, pets. Well, I yeah. think it'll be really interesting, and I'm sure we'll have more to talk about once we have um, those. Once the you know all the people have have uh, qualified and. We know all about who's running. Is there anything else going on statewide that you want to mention? Well, I think it's uh, it's going to be a really interesting time. I don't know if y'all had already talked about it. Our um, our ex- our long-serving executive director has uh, has turned in her notice, and she's going to be leaving in mid-February. Uh, just oh, like, I didn't hear that. Know, yeah, been here, done this, right? And this seems like a appropriate time for that transition and so uh rebecca has done an outstanding job and um i've been very pleased with her leadership but it's uh so the exciting thing to me about that is that i think we will be able to have a national search and be able because we will be i think we will be a battleground both in the presidential primary as well as in the general election that we'll in some ways have uh, likely have a very well-qualified pool of people interested in coming and serving as our next executive director here. And not that there won't be well-qualified people in state, but I think it will be a very, uh, we won't be searching around going, please, somebody come apply. <laughs> right? I think yeah. Well, that, that is, I think we'll have um, a lot I'm of sorry options. to hear that because, sorry to hear that because I think Rebecca has done a, an incredible job and uh, I, I, again, I really like her um, attitude and um, approach to the work as well. But 
as we as, it's as a I tough always job. Have to say. It's a tough, tough job. It's a, yeah. it's a tough, <laughs> tough job, and no one is irreplaceable. You know, I mean, we all have we have to always recognize that. As much as we adore them, there there's there should always be time. There's always a time for an individual or for an organization to, to change up. So. I'm sure, and I yeah. think you're right. I think we'll probably have a really good um, pool of candidates, and that's great news for the party. Yeah. Well, now I'm going to pass now it back sure to David because I know he he has some questions for you too. Thank you, Wendy. Fair enough. Sure. I'm Wendy, just one last question, and it was something you had mentioned. You mentioned the debates uh, national level for president because they'll start up. Uh, probably sooner than we would think they would, but they'll get going. And we know last time the Republicans had, was it 15 or 16 candidates? And they had to have like a big debate and a junior debate, and polling decided who made which debate. And it was really, even when they broke it down to say eight candidates, it was still too many for everybody to get a word in edgewise. We may likely have even more than 16 candidates. I've heard possibly 20 candidates um, might even jump into this race. If we have some high double-digit number, um, have there been discussions about how to give everybody a chance to be heard but not have an absolute, you know, game show mess where you've got so many people on stage? Yeah, it is. It's something that the, the uh, national party leadership is uh, very uh, – on top of, I guess is a right, not an elegant phrase, but they're they're anticipating, right, that we will have a very large pool of, of frankly, really well, well qualified candidates running, and they have already said that we will not do a, an undercard kind of series of debates, whereas we may have a, a two night or a, you know two different times. You may have a debate A and debate B among the challengers so you don't have just a you know more people on the stage than you can see um they will not have it be a top tier and bottom tier it will be sort of a random draw kind of thing uh between them and they also are working through the details of what it would take to make the debate right so basically you know everybody who's thrown their name out there will not necessarily be invited but they also don't want it to be just national polling Right or just early state polling, they're they're looking at uh, multiple factors, uh, including factors like uh, low dollar fundraising uh, as being an element to sort of get you get you in the game of those debates. So they they're they they're well knowledgeable that we're going to have a plethora of candidates, uh, and they want to do debates that are meaningful, um, not sort of first tier, second tier. They also want them to be meaningful in terms of Topics, right? I think I saw a quote in one article from the chairman, <laughs> Chairman Perez, saying uh, we don't want debates to be about hand size, right? Yeah, that would probably be a good thing. Um, that, that wasn't probably the best moment for our democracy when um, Marco Rubio and Donald Trump got into that. Mm-hmm. Well, Wendy, we thank you for coming on the program and always enjoying you come on. And, of course, we'll call on you again sometime in the near future. Well, thanks so much. Y'all have a good night, and I appreciate you doing this show. Thank you, Wendy. All right, Wendy Davis, uh, Rome City Councilwoman and DPG and DNC member. Um, Always good to be informed by Wendy about a lot of that party structure stuff. And even if you're a Republican listening, 
a lot of that internal party workings, it's kind of interesting how the two parties, you know, you see the other side sometimes, and, and she really understands the inner workings as well as anyone probably in the country. Um, well, Tim, well, I was having you talk about David Perdue and the fact that he attacked a fellow Republican and what that could mean politically for his 2018 race, which I think we see as a um, battleground race. I'm going to give Catherine a shot at this. Catherine, is this a sign that he's more worried about a inner party challenge than he is in defeating a Democrat um, in the general election? Oh, I hadn't even thought. I, I can't imagine anybody would run against him. I mean, maybe some, you know, no-name person, but I think he's worried about just maintaining support in the state from the Republicans, especially <clears throat> the Trump supporters, and uh, starting now to, you know, put the fear in the Democrats of his of his run. But I I, I guess it's possible that he's concerned about a a primary opponent. Yes. Well, I mean, we see we were talking early, uh, maybe even before the show, about how Cory Gardner in Colorado and Susan Collins in Maine, two of the top uh, battleground targeted Republicans, are approaching this thing. Well, Susan Collins has been in you know in office in Maine for a lot longer than David Perdue. Uh, Georgia is not as Democratic as Colorado, but it doesn't seem to be you know light years behind. And so, therefore, to me, it seems like he should want to try to not completely close off, you know, swing voters. And I'm not saying every swing voter just loves Mitt Romney, but it seems like attacking Mitt Romney to defend Donald Trump would not really woo a lot of those folks. And so it seems like kind of a bold move unless he just really wants to, you know, fight Lindsey Graham to be Donald Trump's best buddy in the Senate. Um, Tim, you really didn't speak too much to the electoral part of this thing. Um, What's your thoughts on it? Catherine, what were you about to say? Well, I I think um, Purdue is loyal. He's a loyal loyal Republican, and when someone attacks the president, he's going to respond because he's loyal to the president. That's what I think. Catherine, I'm sorry. I didn't even hear a – uh, even anything come out, so it may have been some audio on my uh, part. If I uh, cut you off, I apologize. No, it's fine. <clears throat> I Tim? just started to say oh. something. Go ahead, Tim. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Um, okay. I, I I think there's a lot to what Catherine has said about him being loyal to the party. I don't doubt he's very loyal to the party. Uh, but but to say he he got pretty personal with Romney about this, you know, saying that uh, you know because he ran for president and failed, you know, Romney took a stance that smacks of I believe he said jealousy and resentment, and it serves the radical liberal left, by the way, and Romney's played right into our hands, and I, I didn't know we were even playing a hand that that Romney could jump into. I, I, I didn't know I, me and Romney were working together on this. But uh, he said that uh, basically uh, it, Romney needs to fall in line with the rest of the party. That means fall in line with Trump. That means say nothing wrong about Trump. That means follow every directive that Trump 
uh, makes. Uh, that means uh, support Trump on everything that he not only does, but also says. Uh, in other words, you've got it's, it's a purity test that some have run in our party in the past. Those purity tests don't work. Um, basically, you're either a Trump supporter or you are out. So, uh, you know, I don't know how that's going to go and when mainstream Republicans are going to get enough of that because you guys know there's a lot more people than uh, Mitt Romney that feel that way. If they don't say it publicly, they certainly say it privately. And and I just wonder at what point they are going to come forth. I realize that about 40% of the voters, the hardcore Trump supporters, are going to stay with him no matter what happens. But, you know, there's a lot more U.S. senators and Congress critters up there than Mitt Romney uh, that believe exactly what Mitt Romney believes. They know better than this nonsense with Trump. And we just wonder at what point a significant number of them are going to say, you know what, that's enough. Or are they going to keep their mouths shut in order to win? That's their choice. And that's where we're at. You there, David? Yes, I am. I'm just uh, (laughs) trying to process everything. Well, let's kind of, since I don't think we're going to have time to get into both our candidates um, for our buy, sell, hold, um, we kind of actually were talking about a few weeks ago about who could run for them. I don't think we mentioned all the candidates. Um, But could this be that, uh, you know, David Perdue sees that maybe Stacey Abrams doesn't run, the free the field does kind of get frozen. People have less time to get organized, and maybe he's counting on some type of Democratic Party disorganization. Um, could that be a possibility? <laughs> uh, he could he could think. I mean, I don't know how he would come to that conclusion after this after November's election, because mm-hmm. I mean we beat we got the six. We took we took some seats in the Georgia legislature, and we came. I mean, some people believe that we won the governorship, but I mean, it was it was so close. So if he thinks we're not organized, then good for him. He can go ahead and think that. Yeah, I mean, I'm just trying to trying to get inside his mind, unless he is just an absolute true believer. But I think this guy. I think is, he is. He gets compared to me negatively to uh, Johnny Isaacson from a lot of Georgians. He's also going to have to deal with, I believe, two incidents where he knocked phones out of people or just got very rude to people when they're asking him questions about Brett Kavanaugh. And just, and it really wouldn't matter what they were asking for. If he was asking for the time, they're asking for the time, and he knocked the phone out of the hand. I mean, it was so rude. I think a lot of that. Um, is going to come back to haunt him, and he's going to be in more trouble than people feel he might. Also, that stuff's great to raise money off of, which means that a challenger would have a decent amount of money for a lot of reasons. Um, So I just don't understand why making an enemy out of Mitt Romney is a good thing. I also heard that Mitt Romney spent very little in his U.S. Senate race, and because he knows how to fundraise well, he's actually started a 
National Senate PAC that's going to uh, – or actually probably will confun- uh, fundraise for congressional candidates to donate. David Perdue probably wouldn't be in line for any of that money, would he, Tim? <laughs> you you got me there, but uh, going back to what Catherine said, you can look at race results, especially in the last few years, and see what's happening. Uh, David Perdue surely can see that too. He should not expect an easy race. Uh, yeah, I, I believe I believe fully right now that this. State is an absolute battleground state in 2020. Uh, that means a lot, lot, lot more engaged voters are coming out, voters who are not going to be voting for David Perdue, I might add. Um, we, we are moving toward purple status in a hurry now. Just think, guys, 13 years ago, or a little over 12 years ago now, our candidate for governor, who was the lieutenant governor at the time, lost the governor's race by 20 points. Then Governor Barnes lost by 10. Jason Carter lost by close to 8. Stacey Abrams lost by four-tenths of a point. Uh, As you mentioned, David, none of our statewide candidates lost by more than six points. That was in the midterms. Hillary Clinton ran the best race in Georgia since her own husband won the state. You know, I mean, come on. It's coming. And Purdue can see that. Uh, And maybe he's firing his salvos early. And I really, I really and truly believe he's decided the way that he is going to have to go is uh, rise or fall with Donald Trump. Don't you believe that, David? Oh, I think that's what, we, you know, things are looking towards. People, uh, you know, play towards, you know, the hardcore of their party, the Republicans. I mean, Brian Kemp's campaign strategy, I don't think um, – until the very waning days of the campaign, he did anything that was even remotely uh, towards the middle, um, which is kind of sad. I mean, I think there's a lot of voters there that don't feel democracy serving them in any way when they, um, when the candidates just double down on a very, in this case, very unpopular president um, who is upside down with the average Georgian. But that's the way David. Purdue thinks he's going to get reelected. Um, if that's well, the case, I mean, it's just very well, uh, curious. That's his feeling, Tim. Well, do, do do Republicans in this state, the way things are playing out, have any other choice right now? Obviously, their power base has left the suburbs and the donut counties of Atlanta. Uh, out there in the seventh district, they don't redraw the lines. We're going to win that sucker next time out. As a matter of fact, you you saw what just happened in the sixth. You see what is happening in the largest growing counties like Gwinnett and and some of those counties surrounding Atlanta. They are trending hard left. All that uh, Republicans seem to have left now on a statewide basis. It would be counties like my county and your county. David, wouldn't you agree with that, Catherine? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's they have they should they should be prepared for quite a battle. 
in, in 2020. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and so rural counties aren't growing at all, and the growth of people coming in from out of state, which may be more either middle-of-the-road voters or Democratic voters, they're going to move to some of those same counties Republicans are really having trouble with. So the Republicans, even though well, they had some kind of blip in the uh, you know election cycles in 2016, what they wrote in 2020, uh, 2012 in the autopsy still holds. And I think a lot of smart Republicans yeah. realize they really do yeah. have to diversify and appeal to um, more and younger voters, and they're just not doing it with things like David Perdue's. Right. Right. Yeah. So, well, um, it's right about the end of the hour, and um, we want to thank Wendy for coming on. Next week, we already have our uh, guest um, locked in, and we're really excited about that. Matt Talibai for the, from the Rolling Stone, their lead political reporter, um, is looking to come on the show on uh, January 13th, so we're looking forward to that next week. Um, till then. David. Bye. Yes, David. Yes. Let's pronounce his name. Let's pronounce his name right. We'll say it. It's Tayabi. There's Tayabi. no L. Help me out because Catherine, I've only read the name, so I want to say oh, it right. I'm a super so you'll fan. Have to give me a phonetic spelling um, <laughs> before next week. Okay. All I'm right. really looking forward to it. I think we all are. Good night, Good y'all. Night, guys. Good night, everybody. Good night, guys. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united. America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world. America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice.